Exceeding Expectations, Episode 81. I feel like the more that leaders can understand that it isn't so much what you do, it's how you do it. And if you can come from this point of view of, I don't know, I love the idea of, you know, beauty and the beast, like the maitre d', be our guest, be our, like if thinking of it as a leader is that you are the maitre d', leading people, guiding people through this process. Welcome to another edition of Exceeding Expectations, where we help to give you ideas of how you can give your customers a much better experience. Our guest this week is Alan Hunkins, and he has some great stories. He has a new book out called Cracking the Leadership Code, and he really brings this, talks about it from a leadership point of view, how we can help people and give them much better experiences. And, and leadership obviously involves so many different areas. It's not simply managing a team of people in your work. It can be many other areas as well. So that's this week's episode with Alain Hunkins. If you do enjoy this episode, please do share it with someone. Why not subscribe to us on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms? And please do leave a review. Thank you. Exceeded Expectations, my guest today is Alain Hunkins. How are you, Alain? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Tony. How are you? I'm pretty good. And um, we just had a pr- brief conversation before we started. And you're an American exiled in the Netherlands. Yes, exiled by choice, though. Yeah, I <laughs> wanted to give my... I have two teenage children, and my wife wanted to give the experience of living abroad. So we've been here about a year and a half and have loved the kind of cross-cultural pollination that we're getting here. It's been t- terrific. And how different is it? Well, where is it you're from? I'm originally from New York City and grew up there, born and raised, and then most recently was living in western Massachusetts uh, in a small town called Northampton, and then moved to the Netherlands in summer of 2018. So I've been here about a year and a half. And, And how different is it? How are you finding it? Um, you know, some things, it's certainly, for, some things are the same in that, you know, there's grocery stores and it's first world and it's, you know, there's heat and there's light and all that great things that you have. And in some ways it's so different in that we don't have a car here. And I love the fact that we have this very strong bicycle culture and just the idea that mm-hmm. also things are built to what feels like to human scale here, much smaller, on a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. So I can bike from, I live in the city of Leiden and I can bike to The Hague or you know, hop on public transport. And it's just the idea that people can be connected physically through public transportation and bicycles. Just It just changes everything. So I, I just love that. Mm. I love that here. Mm. And how, how is your family finding that? My family, my wife and I, I think we are thrilled. We, we love it the most. Uh, now, granted, we have teenagers here. And so I think they are feeling a bit more, they miss home. They miss their friends. And mm. it's, it's hard for them. You know, they're kind of forming their identities and I don't think they feel like they signed up to become European. Like, wait a minute, hold on. You know, we, we, have, we have our lives here. And so they've been good sports. They're great kids. And they've been great about coming over and having the experience. I think they're going to appreciate this experience more when they're back. That's my hope. As a parent, that's always your hope, right? Don't you appreciate what I'm doing for you? But uh, it's been, a, it's been a, a wild ride. And we've gotten a chance to travel and see some pretty wonderful places while we've been here, too. 
Well, and you mentioned before when we were talking about the languages as well, and I, I guess you wouldn't have those sort of opportunities to learn languages the same back well, in Massachusetts. That's the amazing thing. I mean, and the thing about being in the Netherlands too, what's great is it's a, a foreign country. Everyone speaks a different language, but everyone also speaks English, which makes it kind of a, the safe zone because the Dutch are wonderful. Mm. And as soon as they hear my terrible accent, they'll just switch into English and say, let's not bother. Don't, don't hurt yourself <laughs> trying to speak Dutch. They're really, really quite nice. And my kids, my, my kids go to an international school. My daughter last year, she took four foreign languages. And I love the fact that they're getting exposure to that there's a whole world out here and there's all this different culture to absorb and languages mm. to learn. So it's been fantastic. Mm. And how has it been from a business perspective? From a business perspective, so I came over here kind of not with a lot of work lined up. I've been working as a consultant and coach, a leadership consultant and coach for many years. Most of my work is in the States. I have a few international contacts. And so I leaped in some ways over here, not exactly sure where would work would come from. And then I just worked through my network and luckily was able to connect with some other people and companies and clients and was able to work. And it's actually been quite steady. Um, so I've been super grateful for that. But it was one of these things that I wasn't sure where the work would come from. And it turned out that where I thought it would come from, it didn't. And where it did was not at all where I would have expected, which I think is often the case with, you know, when you, when you pursue opportunities. You just have to kind of put things out there, throw things against the wall and, and see what sticks, as it were. Hmm. And so what you mentioned just then about sort of coaching and leadership and so on. So how take us back to where did that all start? Sure. Yeah. So I've been working in the field of education first with kids. Actually, I was doing leadership training in junior high schools and high schools for a couple of years in New York City. And then I transferred into the world of corporate education and adult education and leadership and management training back in 1997. And I've been working as a leadership trainer, coach, facilitator, um, since then, and really have been fascinated by why people do what they do. I used to study psychology when I was in college. I actually then went and studied theater. I actually went to drama school for three years because I've always been fascinated by you know people's motivation, and that was a really interesting way to look at performance and how people show up. So I've been really interested in, in people. That's the common thread. If I look in, in the rearview mirror, I see that I've always been fascinated by people. And so for me, I wanted to know more about that. And I've just continued to learn. And along the way, with working with different leaders and groups, people started sharing some amazing stories. And I realized I needed to start taking notes. So I took some notes and then realized I wanted to write these notes into something. And so I started blogging in 2011 kind of in earnest, and then really started going on a once-a-week blog schedule in 2013. And so the blog started piling up, and then I started reviewing the blogs and looking for common themes. And from those themes, I noticed that I had some chapters emerging, and those chapters turned into what is this new book that I have called Cracking the Leadership Code, which is really a comprehensive guide on how to become a better leader. And just one of the things you mentioned just then about you had that sort of... Um, habit of doing a, a blog once a week how hard or easy was that well it didn't start off with that habit of once a week when i first started and this i really had been wanting to write just to give you a background so i have this book coming out here 2020 i've been thinking in earnest about writing a book for at least 20 years and so it's finally coming out so that tells you a sense of how long it's taken me to get my act together as it were so when i first started mm -hmm. blogging i was i started off 
in 2011, and I look back at some of those blogs, and first of all, the schedule was all over the place. I mean, I would post sometimes four posts a day, and then I would take a break for three weeks, and then another one. And the writing, the topics were all over the place, and the quality of the writing was not very good. And it really took me a couple years to start to find my voice. And I also realized I needed to create a schedule and something that was more structured. And so I gave myself this commitment to start publishing a post every Saturday. Um, I just picked Saturday, kind of a random day of the week. And I knew that come Saturday, I needed to have something. And there was something about creating the structure and having that internal pressure that just got me on the schedule. And the more that I wrote, I found the better it got. And I started realizing that people love stories. And so telling stories in my posts, trying to talk more in the active voice than a passive voice, trying to, you know, I think the biggest, hardest part of writing is editing, right? So it's just how do I take out all the stuff that just isn't moving the story and the thinking forward? And so just working at that over and over and over again, over week after week after week, really helped me to become a writer. Hmm. And then, so the the content that you use for those blog posts, did that help with the content for the book? Absolutely, yeah. So the content from the book, in some ways, some of that those posts have been a little repurposed because I was looking at what some of the common themes were. So the subtitle of the book is Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And those three secrets are parts two, parts three, and parts four of the book. So part two, it's connection is the first secret. The second secret is communication. And the third is collaborations, because I found a lot of themes under those subheadings. And so there's multiple chapters in each of those parts of those themes. So who would you say is the book really aimed at? The book is aimed at anyone who aspires to become a better leader, which I realize is a pretty broad market. But uh, a lot of leaders end up in their roles, not necessarily by choice, but more of a kind of a happy circumstance of they were good at what they did and then they got promoted. So I think anyone who aspires to become better. Now, I've gotten some great endorsements from multiple thought leaders who are pretty well known in in the leadership circles. Uh, And what's been really great feedback is that the book really does cast this very useful wide net. And that's because I've had this, uh, you know, 20 plus year as a practitioner. So I've really picked up tons and tons of top tips and tools and techniques that people can use. So on the one hand, while the book has stories and it's super engaging, it's also extremely practical. So people can use it and apply the principles immediately. Hmm. And the book is released what, in a couple of weeks. It's coming it? out. It's yeah, not. it's actually being released on March 24th is the release date. It's being published by Wiley. And so it's available kind of wherever books are sold and certainly on good old Amazon. So now that you've, um, so I presume you probably finished the actual writing of it a few months ago. Are you now sort of aching to do another one or what's what's happening now? Not quite yet. I'm not actually aching. I've I've been capturing some other stories um, and I have some ideas for potentially books two and three. But right now, I'm really wanting to get the word out on this one. I mean, what really fires me up is to see people take ideas and apply them, you know, and to become, you know, better leaders. And that's leaders in your own life, by the way. That's not just necessarily as a kind of formal title. In fact, I think most of leadership is informal. And so I'm really hoping to get the word out, whether that's through speaking, through coaching and training, kind of to build out on some of these ideas. Because, again, this first book is kind of 20 years of knowledge from the field. I kind of feel like I want to bring that knowledge back out to people further though mm. i do have some other ideas for some some follow-up 
potential books mm. down the road. I try to always capture cards and, and, and file them away to be able to revisit them later. I have a friend who's a stand-up comedian, and I remember talking with him about the world of stand-up comedy. And I said, you know, it seems like stand-up comics are, are so much funnier than everybody else. He said, we're no funnier than anybody else. All we do is we take better notes. So I think that's a good point for anyone who's interested in writing, is just start taking notes. Every day is a goldmine for material if we start paying attention and capturing those moments. Everyone's got terrific stories. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. And one of the, and what you just said about the stand-up comedian, because I, I did a, a little bit of stand-up comedy, and one of the things I learned in, in that process was just to not edit yourself when you're trying to write material, just to get it down on paper and then do the editing the next day or something. Yeah, no, completely, completely. It's a completely different skill to create and then to edit. We have to realize, and I teach innovation stuff, and we talk about this as being divergent thinking and convergent thinking in, in the world of innovation. Divergent is about just let the ideas flow because you don't know which ones are good. You just got to throw them out there. Yeah. And the challenge is to silence that internal critic that's just saying, this mm. is rubbish, this is rubbish. You know, just get that first rubbish draft out on the page. Don't worry about if it's mm. good or bad and just let it flow. And I tell you, I wish I was better at it i still struggle with that internal critic but i had a mm. mentor who said that trying to write and edit at the same time is like trying to drive a car with your foot on the gas pedal and the brake pedal at the same time all you're going to do mm. is make yourself car sick so <laughs> i thought that was a great way to describe it it's just thinking about you just got to let it flow and be okay with the messiness and the more mm. that i do it the more i realize i go oh i'm in that rubbish first draft ugly phase and yes, mm. it feels like rubbish. And you know what? I'm just going to get through this because the only way out is through it. Mm. And so you talked a bit, a bit there about the whole kind of, you know, when you were writing the blogs and, and writing the book. And I know that you've got a monthly newsletter and you've got, you've got a story that comes from that, haven't you, about the, um, the newsletters you sent to, to your clients? Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to do with the newsletter is to uh, touch base with my clients on, on a regular basis. But you know, it was one of these things of how can I touch base in a way that adds value? And actually, I found, and are you familiar with the writer, author, he's a professor at Wharton named Adam Grant? He's written, oh, yeah, 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 so Adam Grant, pretty, pretty famously well-known guy. Anyway, he's mm. got this fantastic newsletter and the structure that I love because what he does is he shares a few pieces on what he's read that has been interesting to him with a quick digest and then some links to the, the post. So you can tell, mm. is it something you want to click on and learn more about? So he shares some mm. things that he's read and then a few things he's written. And I love the format. So I shamelessly mm. stole that format <laughs> and I put it into my newsletter. And what's been great about it, it's been a great way to add value. In fact, it's one of the things that I found that really helps me help my colleagues to exceed expectations is whenever mm. I get information, you know, whether it's a new article or a piece of data or a white paper, one of the first things I stop to think is, who else would benefit from this? Or who needs to know mm. what I know? Because, you know, information is not that important today because everyone has access. Anyone who has internet access has access to all the same information, but we're all drowning mm -hmm. in too much of it. So I stopped yeah. to think, how can I curate that? How can I provide insight and give someone who I know is focused on, let's say, innovation or creativity, and I see this article, let me send that to them, or something around empathy and leadership. Let me send that to them. And it's amazing how many of my colleagues and my clients rec uh, appreciate the fact that someone else is out there thinking about them and just sharing 
you know, I'm not drowning them in this stuff. I send it once a month and I'll send four or five articles. But, you know, things that I've read through and I'm curating rather than just, oh, that looks interesting. Let me just share blindly is to stop and really Mm -hmm. think about what is it that I'm sharing and then give them a a summary so they can know if they want to learn more. Mm. And so how has the reaction been uh, to people, uh, by people to that? Oh, it's been really, really strong. You know, it's interesting. Um, If you look at the percentages of email marketing, and this is where data analytics is is fascinating, is that, Mm -hmm. you know, my email newsletter gets opened by about 50% of the people that get it which is, you know, for an email, you, know, you could call it email marketing because that's what it is. Um, for mm-hmm. marketing, that is an extraordinarily high number, you know, if you think yeah. about it. Because what people also realize is when I'm reaching out, I'm reaching out and thinking, how can I help? How can I help? And that's the consistent thing as opposed to, hi, you haven't heard from me. Let me tell you what I'm selling today, right? It's such a different mm-hmm. embodiment of your attitude. It's like if you can mm-hmm. reach out to people with the attitude of, how can I help? I'm, I'm offering something to you here. And I actually, I expect nothing in return. And if people mm-hmm. read it, that's great. And if they don't, I understand. I mean, we're all busy people. So mm-hmm. it's, it's all, it's kind of putting it out there for the people who it's, who it's going to attract. So it's actually been working mm-hmm. out really well. I mean, something else we were talking about is your, how you engage leaders um, as clients and as coaches in your training sessions. Yeah. So we talked about, yeah, how can I help to exceed expectations? So I'm, I'm fascinated by your, your whole concept of exceeding expectations because we think about expectations. I mean, to me, it's so much about what is my belief of what I expect because there is no absolute expectation. It all has mm-hmm. to do with perception. So mm-hmm. when I engage with leaders and I'm coaching them, and one of the things I do, for example, is I do a two-day leadership training with a very small group of leaders, only four leaders. And we do some very specific you know, one-on-one coaching feedback over the course of two days where they're getting up and they're practicing and they're getting feedback from me, they're getting feedback from each other. But one mm-hmm. of the things that makes it so successful is as we start, I ask them to state what would make these next two days a success? So in other words, what I'm asking them to do is state your expectations and get really, not as state them, but actually clarify and distill them down to their essence. And I say, if we could wave a magic wand and at the end of these two days, this was, could go to your wildest dreams, what would you want? And then I have them capture that. So by making that implicit expectation explicit, now mm. I no longer have to guess. I, I found that people are good at many things, but mind reading is not one of them, right? So yeah. one of the things I find is that, so I state that up front, and then at the end of day one, I check in with each person one-on-one, and I ask them, I just want to check in. How is it going against the deliverable of your expectation of what you're hoping to get? Are we on track? Are we not on track? And then I follow mm. that up with, is there anything that I could be doing differently as your coach? And, you know, occasionally someone will say yes, but for the most part, people are saying, no, 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 this is great. And I do the same thing on day two. And I know that the process is going to be filled with excellent coaching and feedback. So by the time mm-hmm. we finish up and then I do a final kind of exit interview, as it were, when I finish mm-hmm. up with them and I say, and I go back to what I, and I scribe this on a, on a flip chart. So I come back to their original expectations of what would make the two days success. And I ask them, mm-hmm. how did we do? You know, everyone says, oh my gosh, completely. And we met, we, we exceeded these expectations. And a big mm-hmm. part of that has to do with not just the content of how you exceed the expectation, but the process by which you take people through. I feel like yeah. the more that leaders can understand that it isn't so much what you do, it's how you do it. 
And if you can mm-hmm. come from this point of view of, I don't know, I love the idea of, you know, beauty and the beast, like the maitre d', be our guest, be our, like if thinking of it as a leader is that you are the maitre d', leading people, guiding people through this process. And how mm-hmm. can you make them your guest and just ask them, how is this working for you? You know, the sense mm-hmm. of kind of hospitality in your leadership and checking in along the way to make sure that people are continuously getting what they want. Because when they know that you know that they know they get it, they're delighted, you know. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we want to do is when we create delight, we create this strong emotional reaction. And people will remember that. I'm sure you're familiar. Maya Angelou has this great quote, right? She says, people don't remember what you say. They probably won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And so taking the time and the care to check in with people along the way is so useful to help exceed Mm -hmm. expectations. And I love what you said there about by getting them to state exactly what their expectations are, then it's very easy to know if they have been exceeded because they know they know exactly what it was that they stated up front. Exactly. And I think another key thing and a way to add value around that is sometimes when you ask people what their expectations are, they can't actually articulate them all that clearly. And so I also mm-hmm. see part of my role is as people might just sort of share and spew a couple of different ideas is to look for the synthesis. How can I take these disparate strands and weave them together? So, mm-hmm. for example, if someone is saying, well, you know, I'd like to be able to give more feedback um, to my people, particularly in difficult conversations, but then I'd also would like to feel more comfortable speaking to groups. Well, one thing that I'm hearing in between the lines there is there's a certain theme of courage, right? The courage to give feedback, the courage to stand up. So I say, so I'll repeat that back and I'll ask. I won't, I won't presume. I'll say, so what I'm hearing here and tell me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing here is that you're wanting to be able to step into a more courageous role as a leader, both in presenting and giving feedback. Does that fit for you? And then I check, right? So, and then oftentimes when you say something like that, people will go, exactly, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted. And it's as if you're saying even better in using better words than they could have expressed themselves. And I see part of the role of the leader is to distill that out so that people walk away with clarity. Because, you know, with clarity, people can take action. And confusion, it's really hard to take focused action. So part of the role is to create clarity for people. What what would you say are the, um, are there sort of current themes you come up against when you're coaching people in leadership? Are there common problems a lot of people have? Yeah. I mean, one of the common problems that I think a lot of people can relate to is the fact that we are living in such fast-paced and complex times and that there's a general sense of overwhelm that Mm -hmm. many people have. Um, Technology isn't helping this. And what's so interesting is I think people are now at a really good space to recognize that, you know, we have this amazing technology and technology and information technology can move at the speed of light, but people move at the speed of matter. And those are two very different speeds. And I think one of the big challenges that people have is to recognize and have the discernment is when do you go fast and when do you go slow? Um, and there's, there's a time and a place to go fast and there's a time and a place to go slow. And particularly the importance of going slow when it comes to building relationships. For example, 
to start a new team or kick off with a new project team. I mean, more and more people are working in situations where collaboration is the norm. You know, you have less and less people who work kind of as individual contributors working in silos. Mm-hmm. So you have more and more people needing to collaborate across functions, across boundaries, across time zones. So how do we create these strong and effective working relationships? And so it's how do you use technology to enable the human process as opposed to the humans just enabling the technology. So I'd say that is a huge common theme that comes up time and time again. And how often do you, the people that you're coaching, how often are you facing um, where they have aspects of, say, imposter syndrome? Oh, some definitely do. Um, And it comes up uh, time and time again as well. Um, Yeah, it's amazing how many people, because look, I mean, Unless you happen to have a life that was relatively scar and blemish free where major things like a lot of people at some point in their life have had wounds that they've had to deal Mm -hmm. with. And unless you've done a certain level of, you know, kind of we'll call it personal work and self-development, it's very easy to carry around those limiting beliefs and those narrow messages that lead you towards those critical thoughts and mindsets of, I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, all of the, the, the telltale signs of imposter syndrome. And mm-hmm. so for me, and I certainly recognize that in myself, I mean, you know, I was a very shy, not outgoing person for quite some time and, you know, really didn't believe in what I could do. And what I have found in working with people, the first step in kind of resolving the imposter syndrome is normalizing people's experience of it. You know, I think a lot of people, when they feel that, there's the tendency to think, and I certainly felt this, is, gosh, you know, I'm the only one who feels this. I'm, I'm going through this. And, and to put yourself in this kind of, in, in this isolation chamber. And that is just the worst place to be, right? Is that, so here's the irony of that, is that it takes a huge amount of courage to be vulnerable. And, but when you do, and you can find people that will support you and, and you can trust, is to start to get the feedback that, no, you're actually really good. Um, mm. it's, it's such an important thing for people to be aware of. And it's interesting because, you know, in some of the coaching work that I do, people will talk about how, you know, and they'll sit down and, oh, there's a great, you might be familiar with this. I didn't, this is a British term that I, I've heard a few times now, facial leakage. <laughs> that is a great, great term, right? It's like that facial leakage, right? You're, that your face is leaking, you know? And so if you have that self-critical voice and then you sit down, you make that like, oh, that was horrible facial leakage face, right? Ugh, mm-hmm. it's terrible. Is, it's so interesting because what we feel about ourselves on the inside is so much worse than how others see us. You know, we are our own worst critics. And the Absolutely. fact is, no one else lives inside of our head. No one else knew that we had a script. And so if we kind of go off, t- off script for a couple of words, no one else cares. No one else is paying attention. And I think for us to realize that it's all okay. And if you have good intention and you've prepped and you've got created some clarity and you have a clear central message and you have some supporting points, you're in great shape. You know, you're ahead of most. And so can we all get better? Yes, but don't beat yourself up to the point where you're just in this, in this situation where you just start to debilitate yourself. Because for some people, imposter syndrome can be debilitating, for sure. Mm. I mean, and as well as that being debilitating, what about sort of like faulty assumptions? What, what, do you come across those quite often? 
Yeah, yeah. So there's all sorts of assumptions that people, I mean, this is the nature of it. Um, there's a, there's a, a book called uh, The Leader's Voice by these two guys named Clark and Crossland. And they talk about these four fatal assumptions of, of leaders. Uh, the first is that others understand you, <laughs> that, that others agree, and that others care and that others will take the appropriate action. And I, and I love that. I mean, the whole sense that others understand you, the fact that everyone is hanging on your every word. The fact is, no one's hanging on your every word except you. No one else lives in your head except you. And so we have to realize that we need to not frame things from our own agenda. And this goes back to exceeding expectations, right? Is that when I get up, I can't be thinking, you know, what's my agenda? I need to build my agenda based on the agenda of my customer, my colleague, my audience, whoever that other person is, why are they there? What's in it for them to listen? You know, where have they come from? Where are they going? What are their pain points? And have I spent some time to understand that? That is so key. If I'm operating from this assumption that what I have to say is valuable because I'm the leader, I'm in the trap of my own ego, right? And that is another huge assumption that leaders have is that we assume because I have the title or I am in charge, is that you will listen to me. And at best, when you operate from that place of ego and that assumption, at best, you will get compliance. But there is no way you will get people's commitment. In the, um, in, I think it was in the book, A Myth, where he, I think he talked about something along the lines of, you often get people who are great at doing something, and then suddenly they're thrust into a management position and then they're, they're awful because they were good at doing the, the task or the skill or whatever it was, but they didn't have the skills to be a manager, which is very different. Or you have to be a leader. Is that something you come across? Yeah, no, for sure. And there's definitely, you know, you see it, you know, time and time again where people, what, you know, and I think Marshall Goldsmith has a great title of a book. He says, what got you here won't get you there, right? The fact mm-hmm. is, if you have great individual technical expertise, that's fine as an individual contributor. But those Mm. aren't the primary skills that you need as a leader. In fact, an Mm. interesting exercise, and we can try this right now, and certainly the audience can try this as well, is if you think about the best leader you've ever worked with in your life, and this doesn't have to be in a work situation, by the way, this could be in school, it could be on a sports team, anywhere. If you think about the best leader you've ever worked with, and you think then, what are the top, and let's do a short list, like the top three to five qualities of that leader. So you can just go ahead and think through those for a moment. Well, definitely okay. one is listening. Okay, great. So you got listening is one. What would another one be? Um, empathy. Empathy, listening, empathy. And then what would the, let's take a third one. Listening, empathy, what would the third uh, one be? And I, Well, I guess courage. Courage, interesting. So now you just go ahead and gave the answers, but if we were to put those into one of three categories or buckets... Right, so the qualities you just listed would they fit into one of these three buckets? The first bucket being intelligence, right? People's IQ. Second bucket being their expertise, right? That their technical functional skills. And the third bucket, let's call their people skills. Now, what you mentioned, right? Listening, empathy, and courage. To me, all three of those fall in the people skills bucket, right? And so, what differentiates great leaders from average and mediocre leaders? Again, goes back, it isn't what you know, it isn't what you do, it's, it's how well do you work with other people. That at its core, leadership is a relationship between a person who chooses to lead and a person who chooses to follow. And that's mm. at its core, that's what leadership is. Simple as that. And it doesn't involve titles and power and control. I mean, it can, but it doesn't have to. 
And so recognizing that if leadership is a relationship, then I need to work on my relationship skills. And that ultimately, I don't care what business I'm in, I'm in the people business because I'm leading people. And so, yes, I need to be a student of human psychology because I'm working with people. And so any leader who thinks that they don't have to learn that stuff is kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face. Mm. Um, so going back onto the subject of exceeding expectations, have you ever been on the receiving end of uh, a great sort of customer experience? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I write about this story in my book under the chapter of empathy because I had this amazing experience that just stuck with me. And I've actually shared it with, with coach when I've been coaching and with audiences when I've been training as well. Uh, and speaking, is um, so I remember, this is a number of years ago, it's vivid though, I remember my son was about six, my daughter was three, we were living back in Massachusetts, and I was running, it was a day of errands, and I picked up my son from preschool, and my daughter had been out, we'd done a bunch of errands, gone to the library, dropped off some books, picked up some dry cleaning, um, and then I took my kids to a grocery store. There's a chain of grocery stores. I don't know if you have them in the UK. We have them in the States called Trader Joe's. Do you, yeah, do you I've have, heard of them, but I don't yeah. think we have them here. Anyway, so Trader Joe's is pretty well known. And there's a Trader Joe's that's not that near my house. It's actually about a 40-minute drive. So it's quite a ways away. But because of the circuit of where I was going to pick up my kids and all the other errands, I thought, oh, there's a few things at Trader Joe's we like, so let's go over there. So it's not a place I go to on a regular basis. So I get to Trader Joe's, and I get out of the minivan with my two little kids who are, you know, buckled out of their car seats. And I get out of the car, and I'm checking my pockets, and I'm looking for my wallet. And I realize my wallet's missing. And I think, oh, my gosh, my wallet's missing. Did I lose it? And I replay the day back in my mind, and I realize, no, I didn't actually need my wallet for anything. I just probably left it at home. So I had my cell phone. I called my wife. She was at home. She said, yep, your wallet's here. Well, now I have another problem because I wanted to go shopping at Trader Joe's, but I don't have a wallet. So I thought, oh my gosh, I've made this whole trip over here for nothing. That was stupid. I thought, what can I do? So I thought, you know, because I travel a lot for work, I've actually memorized all the 16 digits of my credit cards and all the the three-digit number on the back. So I thought, let me ask if it's possible, is it possible if I gave them the number they could call it in? I mean, I thought it's worth a try. You know, it probably won't work, but let me go in and ask. So I go inside, I go over to the manager's booth, and there's a a woman there named Carlotta. And I ask her, and I explain the whole situation, I, I lost my wallet. And she listens to the whole thing, and she says, I'm sorry, sir, but, you know, we need to have a physical credit card present. We can't do that. And so, you know, it's a failure. I'm ready to walk out of there. And then just as I'm ready to turn around and walk away, there's another man there, and I remember him very vividly. He's got these large eyes and these large glasses that make his eyes almost look like an owl, very vivid uh, face. And I see his name tag. It says Peter, assistant manager. And, and Peter says to me, he says, hey, um, you live in Northampton. Was that right? Because he'd heard I mentioned that. I said, yeah. Mm. And he said, well, that's, that's, a, that's a long way away with the construction on the bridge because there's been construction. So he's like, yeah, it is. I said, yeah, I left my wallet. And so Peter said to me, he said, well, you know, why don't you just go ahead and go shopping? And when you're ready to check out, just call me over and I'll put it on my card. And I stopped and I had to stop for a moment and go, wait, what are you saying? He said, yeah, just go ahead and shop and I'll put it on my credit card. Now, he's the assistant manager, so I'm thinking that they have some kind of special Trader Joe's corporate card. So I said, you have some kind of corporate card you can do that for? And Peter said, no, um, I'll just put it on my personal card, and you can pay me back the next time you're in the store. 
This is a complete stranger, right? And I said, you would do this? You would do this for me? Are you serious? He said, yeah, of course. This happens more often than you think. It's really not a big deal. So it was amazing. And so I went shopping, and $73.42 later, <laughs> Peter pulled out his card, and he swiped it. And, you know, there was, there was no collateral. He just trusted me that I would take care of this. And, and I even told him, I said, look, I'm leaving town on a business trip tomorrow. I can't get over here for another week. He said, oh, it's no problem. It was whenever. So I got home. The first thing I did, I told my wife this entire story. And I said, you've got to go back over there tomorrow. So I wrote a check and she kind of went over there with a thank you card to Peter the next day. And the amazing thing is not only did obviously Peter exceed my expectations there, but I have this soft spot for both Peter and Trader Joe's as a brand. And I go shopping there way more often than I ever had before. And what I have found is in telling that story to other people, it's amazing how many people have come up to me afterwards and have told me their own version of a Trader Joe's story of someone going above and beyond and exceeding expectations. So there's clearly something in the organizational DNA of that company where they do that. And so I just think it's a great example of just where I was totally blown away with someone who definitely went way above and beyond. And people have said to me, oh, come on, you know, I can't necessarily give away money. I'm like, yeah, but the principle is what can you do? What can you do to exceed expectations? You may not do that, but what can you do? Exactly. It's that mindset, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you know, that's, that's a great story. I mean, and I, there's, there's certain companies that I hear people refer to time and time again when it comes to that kind of attitude. And it's, I've heard stories of Trader Joe's before. Another one is Southwest, is Southwest Airlines. Yeah, Southwest Airlines. And, and um, the, the shoe company, Zappos. Zappos, yeah, Zappos. Yep, I write about Zappos in my book as well. Yeah, Zappos is known for delivering these wow, they call it the wow experience, you know, mm. which I think is a great term. You know, I, I write in my book around, you know, one of the things that leaders need to do is how do you create delight and, and, mm. and create positive intentions? That's all part of this wow experience. And there are things mm. that we can do that will wow people. We know that there are things mm. we can do. Just think, what will wow you, Right. For example, surprise will wow people. You know, going above and beyond wows people. Having a positive attitude wows people. So those are all replicable behaviors that you can do and add into your repertoire of your toolkit if you want to exceed expectations. Well, and and if you think about when you how you feel when you've been wowed by a situation like you just described with Trader Joe's, it makes you feel so good. So if you can do that on a regular basis for your clients, you're just going to get great client relationships absolutely absolutely and and to me and this is why that trader joe story ends up in the chapter in my book around empathy is it starts with creating this connection and my best definition of empathy is basically it's understanding people and knowing that you care how they feel right it's Mm. it's the old you've heard the expression i'm sure everyone's heard it right people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and while Mm. it might sound like a trite cliche it's true and the amazing thing is there's all this wonderful research that backs that up. So what in the past had been considered kind of soft and kind of a little cushy, touchy-feely, oh, that sounds all great, but where are the business results? Well, you know, companies that have, for example, high trust cultures versus low trust outperform their competitors by 286%. Right? That data isn't in my book, and I, I back that up with the research. So if you look for it, there's all sorts of, there's a, there's a hard case for all of these soft skills like empathy, like mm-hmm. trust, like exceeding expectations because it just makes mm. sense because we're human. Mm. I mean, we've touched upon this in the last couple of minutes, but, but what does the phrase exceeding expectations mean to you? 
To me, exceeding expectations is having someone understand what their belief is. And beliefs are those things that we, you know, we feel firmly about something. We believe it. So I have a belief and exceeding expectations is a way for you to challenge that belief in a positive way. So it's, it's the sense that I have this belief and you're exceeding it is, wow, you have gone above and beyond from the positive point of view. Obviously, you can go on the other side too, but that's what to me exceeding expectations is around is that because we all come in with a baseline belief of something and that's what our, mm. our boundary of expectations is. And so when I can have a positive way, that's how I'll exceed it. That's the most concise definition I've ever been given. <laughs> well, there you go. Good. All the years of writing and distilling things down, I'm pretty concise about how stuff. So my book is 280 pages of action-packed, distilled-down wisdom because it came from 23 years of experience. <laughs> and that was what I was about to ask you about, about the book. And you know, if people want to find out more information about you and about the book and, and so on. So want to give us some... Yeah, sure. So, yeah. so the book is called Cracking the Leadership Code. And the subtitle is Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. If people want to learn more about the book, you can go to www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. And while you're there, you can download chapter one for free. And that page is a sub-page, it's the book page of my website, which will be alainhunkins.com, which is A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And you can learn more about me and the work and the services that I do, working with clients, both from a training, coaching, consulting, and speaking points of view. Because my work is all about helping people to become strong leaders by growing their connection, their communication, and their collaboration skills. And is there any sort of social media people can find yep, you? Yeah, people can find me. I'm not super active on Twitter, and I don't even have an Instagram page. It tells you something, but I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, happy to connect. And I also share posts there. And also, there's opportunities to sign up for my newsletter when you download the chapter of the book. And as I said, I put out a monthly newsletter that has articles on leadership and behavior that I've either read or written that a lot of my colleagues and clients uh, find valuable. Um, I know you've got a quotation you quite like, and you almost touched upon it earlier on when we were talking about some things. So what, what's the quote that you like? Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, we talk about leadership as a relationship. So this quote comes from Henry Winkler, and Henry Winkler, you know, who played the Fonz on TV. Fonz, yeah. Yes, Fonzie. And what Henry Winkler, okay. Fonzie says is, assumptions are the termites of relationships. Or maybe he would have said it as, assumptions are the termites of relationships. Hey, because that's a Fonzie way to say it. But I love that because it's true, right? I mean, relationships all work well on paper. Assumptions are what get in our way. And so mm. assumptions are the termites of relationships. And if you were to recommend a book to anyone, which book would it be? Well, you know, I'm a bit biased right now because I have my book being released. So I have to recommend mine because um, it really do. I, but that being said, my book is built on, I feel like I stand on the shoulders of giants that have come before me for sure. Um, one of my favorite leadership books and uh, both of the authors, I was lucky enough to have them endorse my book. Uh, Jim Cousins and Barry Posner have written the book and it's now in its sixth edition. And it is timeless, and it's so useful. It's called The Leadership Challenge. It's in its sixth edition, and it is a great primer on leadership. And I owe a huge debt to both uh, Jim Cousins and Barry Posner. And they're, they're terrific scholars, educators, and leaders in their own right. Well, Alain, it's been um, 
superb the the information you've shown that you shared and the stories and um yeah it's been been a really interesting episode so thank you well, thank you tony it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you Next week, episode 82 is with Vicky Wuxiai, and she's going to help us to manage our money better and how we can exceed expectations or exceed our own expectations by how we use our money and how we think about money. And she, she gives a couple of examples that might well really get you thinking about money and the way the, the government handle it for us and how we think about mortgages and many other areas, in, uh, especially in this time that we're experiencing right now with the, uh, the grants and handouts that we're being given. She gives us a, a new perspective on that. So that's next week's episode with Vicky Wuxiai. Hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Please do share it with anyone who you feel would really benefit from some of the, uh, the information, some of the nuggets that were given by Alain. I hope you uh, please do leave a review for us on iTunes and why not subscribe as well and hope you have a great week.